0: So, we're getting near the end of the book of Hebrews. Near the end. Now, I do want to say this as well. I hope you guys will come and bring your friends next week because we're going to have a special guest preacher. Actually, Jerry, who's the pastor of Southside Community Church here, is going to preach. And I'm really asking you to do everything you can to be here so that this brother would be blessed. I don't know if you know or not, but they when we didn't have a place to meet on campus, We couldn't meet at Midtown anymore because they needed their building. Um, Todd Lake told me to call Jerry, Pastor Jerry over here. He didn't know me at all. I called him up, and he said, well, meet me over at the church. I'll just give you the keys. We've never paid them one cent to use this building. As you know, last year, even, you know, Miss Tasha started making food for us, you know, after RUF downstairs, and then, of course, she passed away, which was really horrible and sad. But this church has just been such a blessing to us, and um, I think it would be so wonderful if we could just really honor Jerry and just kind of blow his socks off, because one of the things, that, you know, they changed the name of this church to Southside Community Church because they really care about the community, yet they also are kind of wrestling with the community has changed, and, and a lot of the people that used to live in the neighborhood and walk to the church, they don't live in the neighborhood anymore. But this church really still wants to be a blessing to the community. And that means Belmont. You can see, look, they put up all the, the college stuff. You know, they bought you all school supplies. Do you remember that? at The beginning of the school year? It's really, it's really unbelievable. I'm, I'm going to keep talk, quit talking or I, I might get a little choked up. But I, I just hope that you guys will be here. I'll be here, right? But I'm really looking forward to hearing Jerry. Listen, this brother can preach. Who's been here to Southside on a Sunday morning heard him? Right, so a lot of you guys. Like, he will get rocking and rolling. <laughs> If you ever wanted to come to church and shout, amen, preach it, anything like that, he, he will totally be into that, and we're going to have a good time. Um, yeah. One of my favorite sermons I ever heard was when I preached here, and then the next week Jerry basically preached my sermon, and then applied it, like I didn't. <laughs> and, it, and it was really good. It was good. I was like, oh, that's how I should have preached it. Um, so anyway... All right, so we're going we're gonna to do Hebrews 13. Uh, we're actually only going to cover the first few verses, and then Jerry, and then I'll finish out Hebrews the week after that. And then we're going to start a short series on the book of Ecclesiastes. All right, so as we come to, to Hebrews 13, here's the one of the things I always think about when I'm thinking about working on a, a, a sermon, which is God's Word gives us orientation to reality theological orientation to reality, if you will. Um, It's an important thing. And when you come to this passage, you know, sometimes the last chapter in a letter when you're a preacher is hard to preach because sometimes it's just like, seems like a bunch of random little things just strung together and you're like, what's the theme? Well, here's the theme that we're going to focus on tonight is that Christianity is not just a way of thinking It's not just a philosophy, it's not just a new idea, it's a new way of life, a new way of living, a radical way of life, in which Christ claims authority over all of life. And that's hard. The other thing I think about when I'm working on a sermon is, why will this be hard for us to receive? In some cases, it's hard to understand what the Bible's saying. I love that the Apostle Peter said that the Apostle Paul's writings were sometimes un- hard to understand. That, g- that gives me a lot of com- comfort, really, when I read the Bible. And I'm like, what does that mean? I'm not even sure what that means. Sometimes that's the challenge in preaching and opening up the Word of God is to explain what it means. But more often than not, it's really pretty clear the difficulty is finding the courage to live it. One of my favorite professors from Covenant Seminary Dr. David Jones used to say that all the time. The real challenge of the Christian life is not so much figuring out what to do, it's finding the courage to do it. And that'll lead us to the second thing we're going to talk about. Not only is Christianity a way of life, the Bible never just tells us what to do. It's always anchored in who God is and what he's done. And that's what we're going to focus on tonight. Christianity presents a new way to live, And it anchors this new way to live in who God is and what He's done. So let's read Hebrews 13. I'm going to read really the first eight verses. I'm actually reading from the NIV tonight. I just liked it a little better than the ESV. I know a lot of you guys use the ESV, but if just try and follow me here. I'm going to do the NIV. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers For by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid, what can mere mortals do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you, consider the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Let's pray, and then we're going to open this up. Lord, we do thank you for your word. Thank you that you don't leave us just groping around in the dark trying to figure out how it is that we're to live, and you don't leave us to wonder why we should live this way. Thank you for clarity. Thank you for speaking a true word in a world full of all kinds of words, all kinds of advice, all kinds of ideas. Thank you for this, your holy and errant infallible Word. Help us to receive it now in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, Christianity is not just a philosophy. Christ claims authority over all of life. And let's just go down and point some of this out. Look, the first thing, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Now, one of the challenges to this is we tend to think in our day and age that true love is always spontaneous. That if it's intentional, or if it's something somebody tells us to do, that it's not real. That's really a lie from the pit. It really is. Love is intentional. You can actually think about it. You can actually plan it. You know, for some of you, like me, Valentine's is coming up. I could actually think about it. It would be good if I thought about it. I didn't just wake up on Thursday morning and be like, oh, yeah, it's Valentine's which is probably what I'll do, Uh, (laughs) sometimes what I do, but it's not right, right? Like, do you think my wife will feel loved if I actually think about it or if I just decide to be spontaneous, right? You remember that, was it the old Visa commercials? They weren't that old, but they would talk about, you know, you need to, you know, to go to tickets to the Red Sox game, you know, this much money and, and, you know, and then, you know, popcorn and ice cream, this much money, having this amazing experience with your son, priceless, Remember that it, it, it sort of it sort of feeds into this idea that the best things, the most important things, you can't actually plan it. You just kind of have to be spontaneous because you need a credit card. You know, you can You wouldn't save up for something like that. You just got to take experience, take life by the horns when it presents itself. And, and we kind of feel that way about love. And we almost feel like if I think about it, if somebody tells me I should do this, that somehow it's not real. It should just kind of well up from inside of me. But if God can command us to love certain people like our, one another as brothers and sisters, then maybe we need to rethink what love is. Maybe it's not just a feeling, right? So God says, I can tell you who to love. I can tell you who to love. That's a pretty radical thing in our day and age, don't you think? How about the next one? Look, don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. In other words, God is telling you how to spend your money. Share what you have, even with strangers, people you don't even know. We are to be hospitable people. God says we have to use what we have, what we've been given for the good of others. And there's something else kind of buried in here that you might not notice. See, in our day and age, to show hospitality might just be an inconvenience. But in this day and age, you remember the situation in the book of Hebrews. These people have begun to be persecuted, right? Now, in this day and age, and really, you know, up until fairly recent times, when people were in prison, they were not provided for food, drink. They had to depend on friends and family to come and support them. Certainly that way in the first century. You see that in some of Paul's other letters when he's asking people to bring him things, and he's thanking people for caring for him. But what do you think happens if a Christian is in jail, member of your community, and you go visit them? It marks you. It marks you. It's not just about an inconvenience. It's about sacrificing even personal safety if we would follow in the way of Jesus, right? Can God command us to risk our lives? Absolutely. Absolutely. I remember uh, years ago, it was actually when I was in seminary. I didn't have much money when I was in seminary. I was a single guy trying to work and get through seminary. But I had more money than when I was in college. So I was in college at Berklee College of Music in Boston. I didn't, really didn't have any money. And so when I was in seminary, one of my spring breaks, I decided I'm gonna go back to Boston and I'm gonna do all the things I never had money to do when I was a college student. So I went and saw the symphony. I went and saw a Celtics game. Because when I went to college in the 80s, so the Celtics and the Red Sox were both awesome. So you couldn't get tickets for any of those sorts of things, right? Uh, so I went and did all this, and I got to go speak at Berkeley College of Music, my college, at the Christian, uh, what would you call it, the Berkeley Christian Fellowship, which me and a few of my friends had started in the late 80s, right? And, and it was still going in the 90s when I was in seminary. And so I kind of wrote them a letter, and I was like, hey, I'm going to be in Boston. I'd love to come speak at the meeting. And they said, awesome, do it. So I gave this little talk about You know, being a Christian in the music business. I'd been in the music business for seminary. And I'll never forget this one girl came up to me afterwards. She was from Indonesia. And she was saying, you know, I'm really wrestling, I'm about to graduate, and I'm really wrestling with whether I should do Christian music or not. And I was about to kind of jump in and be, oh, you know, hey, I've got the answer for this. You know, I know about Biblical World Life View, and there's no sacred secular, and you should think about you know, glorifying God with your music, but it doesn't have to be Christian music, you know, to be glorified to God. But before I could say any of that stuff, she said, because, you know, in my country, if somebody gets converted through my music, I can be put to death. And I was like, oh, that's a different question. And I don't really know how to answer that question. That's not just like, well, I'd like to sing about Jesus, or I could just sing country songs or pop songs, and I'm I'm really kind of wrestling with where God's leading me. No, this is, should I sing about my faith after spending four years in college if it means that I might be put to death? That's still the reality for so many people in our world. And God calls people to speak boldly their faith, to identify with Christ, even in those situations. But then Maybe even the harder thing for us, for our day and age, is in verse 4. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. God says he gets to tell us what to do with our bodies. My friend Steve Garber has written a lot of books, has done a lot of work with college students and faith, says really in our day and age, where the rubber meets the road with regard to college students and their faith is can God tell you what to do with your body? If there's there's one message that you hear constantly in every different way in our day and age, and it's a message, of course, that resonates with your heart. You can't just blame it on the culture. It's I can do what I want with my body. To which Christianity says no. No you are not your own, you were bought with a price, therefore honor God with your body. That's the way Paul puts it. Here, same thing. You see this teaching all over the place. And you might think, geez, that's a little intrusive, you know, God telling me what I can do with my bodies. But you know what I want you to understand? Statements like this in the New Testament were one of the things they would made Christianity attractive to two groups of people in particular, women and slaves. Because this was an absolutely radical thing to say in the first century. In the first century, Roman law, if you were a man, you could command, demand sex from anybody who was a subordinate. And Christianity said to, to Christian men, you do not have that right. The culture says you can do that, but God says you can't. You have to honor other people. It's fascinating. you know. In our day and age, we think that we just take that for granted. It was not taken for granted that people had a right to refuse sex with people they didn't want to have sex with. That was a radical message introduced into the world by Christianity. It's kind of ironic because these days, most people think that Christians are the, are the worst when it comes to sex and You know, like everything that's wrong in the world with regard to sex probably came from Christians. It's actually just the opposite. I'm not saying that Christians haven't contributed some bad stuff, without a doubt. But you need to understand how radical this is. That God would tell people, even though the culture tells you that you can do what you want with your body, with whomever you want, and they don't have anything to say about it, God says no. And in this Christian community, marriage will be... Honored. It goes on. Verse five. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. In other words, the things that you think are yours, they're not. Now, how deep has the gospel penetrated into your life? When you read things like this, do, do you read this and just feel bad? Maybe. But what you really should say, look at this countercultural way of life. What would our communities be like if they looked like this? What would our communities look like if sexuality was honored, if hospitality was a way of life, if we loved one another as brothers and sisters, if we were kept free from the love of money and lived with contentment because God has said, never will I leave you or forsake you. Don't you want a community like that? It's not going to happen automatically. It's going to happen if the dots get connected between what God has done, who God is, what he's made us for, what he calls us to live for. Don't get reactive and just bow up. I don't know about you, but I have, I've never seen a rule that I didn't want to fight against. I may not seem that way to you. You can ask my wife. I don't like, I don't like rules, just because they're rules. And you can read something like this and be like, oh, you know, I don't know about this. Don't bow up. Instead, ponder the implications of a God who says, I care about you this much. Then I'm going to actually get into the nitty gritty details of your life. I want the gospel to sink all the way deep down into your heart and into your life. I want, I want the implications of what I've done in Christ to spill over into every relationship you have, and into everything that you're about. You know. Uh, in the first century, sometimes Christianity was regarded as the third race. There were Jews and there were Gentiles, and then there were Christians. And it was hard to even know like how you categorize them. And they began to think of them as a third race, as a whole different way of being. And, it, and it's teaching like this. It's not just think some new ideas. It's live in a different way because something has happened in Christ that changes everything. And that gets us to the second part. Even though the Bible tells us what to do, it never merely tells us what to do. It never just tells us what to do. There's profound theology woven all through these verses that show that what we believe and what we worship and how we live are inseparably linked. And remembering the truth of what Christianity is, what Jesus has done, is absolutely vital for living the Christian life. So look at this. Let's go back over this and see how it's anchored in truth. We're to love as a family. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do you see? The the command to love is anchored in a new reality. Jesus said that if we are called to love him, It may mean leaving father, mother, brother, sister, but in the kingdom we would have new fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters. In other words, a new family, a new identity. We are to love because we have been made part of a new family. And that's a big deal. In the first century, one of the most important things about you and your identity was what family you were from. And Christianity comes in and says, that is not ultimately the most important thing about you anymore. Now, you are part of a new family, the family of God. You've been adopted into this family. And adoption under Roman law was something that could never be revoked. You have security In this family, but you're also to live as somebody in this new family. Love one another as brothers and sisters because that is what you are. It's not just a nice metaphor, it's not just kind of hyperbole, it's a new reality. And so when you're struggling to love one another, you need to say, okay, hold on, what do I know is true? I know that this person that I'm struggling to love is my brother, is my sister. I need to remember that. God, help me to do what you tell me here to do. We're to love as a family because that's what we are. Becoming a Christian constitutes us as part of a new family structure. We're to entertain strangers. Why? Well, because we ourselves have been welcomed. What the gospel is about is about welcoming us. The apostle Paul puts it this way, that We used to be not a people. The Hebrew term is lo-ami. You were not a people, but now you have been made a people. You were strangers, but now you have been welcomed in. And so, of course, you have to entertain strangers. To to not entertain strangers would be to contradict your very identity and to undermine your story. It's who you are strangers that have been welcomed. We are to welcome others as we have been welcomed. And when we entertain strangers, we might actually be entertaining angels. What did you think about that? Is that like, oh, I don't know, you know, Presbyterians, we're not going to talk about that, right? (laughs) You're just going to kind of move on there. You know, what does it even mean? Well, it doesn't always have to mean heavenly beings, but it can. It at least means messengers. And of course... You shouldn't rule out heavenly beings, which in our day and age, sometimes we do. We have this anti-supernatural bias, and so we're just like, well, it can't mean that. Well, it might, but at the very least, it means that welcoming a stranger may be welcoming a message that God has for you. It may come in actual words, it may come in other ways, but sometimes God brings messages even as we seek to honor him. We're to identify with those who are suffering in prison because the body is one. Look at verse 3. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison. What a radical identification you are to have even with those who are suffering because you're all part of one body. You're all part of it. It's who you are. And then marital faithfulness. God cares about it. Marriage should be honored by all. Now, this is a tricky one because in our day and age, I think sometimes, especially in the church, marriage is idolized by those who are married and by those who aren't married. And it's very difficult to speak about how marriage is to be a countercultural way of leaning into God's faithfulness, but so can singleness be. And I'll just tell you, I was single till I was 33. That's not an easy thing, right? And, and, and so often in the church, you're made to feel like a second-class citizen sometimes. The church has to do a better job of honoring marriage, not I- idolizing marriage. Just like you are to honor your mother and father, but you're not to give slavish obedience to them. Okay? So God cares that we honor marriage. How do you keep this command as single people? Because most of you in this room are single people. Well, think about this way. Are there ways that you live or think or dream that encourage or discourage marital faithfulness in us or other people? Do we have a role to play in the stuff that we watch, in the fantasies that we indulge in with regard to honoring marriage or not honoring marriage? How about the way we think of physical beauty? does that have a role to play in whether we're honoring marriage how about pursuing a way of living where we just do whatever feels like or feels right at the moment are we building habits that will make it difficult to honor marriage one day god wants marriage to be a picture of his love for his people and so the problem with adultery and the, problem, the reason God cares about it is it distorts what he's trying to teach the world about his love. Consent, contentment requires profound trust in God and his providence and care for us. Look at verse 5. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. And now here the writer of Hebrews quotes some Bible verses for these. Which is, which is really interesting, because you might think, you know, the earlier ones were harder, but maybe contentment is even more difficult, because he feels a need to actually att- 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 append a verse to this one, to get a little extra kind of oomph to this. But look at what it is that is the reason, the thing that will help us to be content is because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, verse 6, the Lord is my helper and I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Here's one of the things that's interesting. The Bible regularly contrasts trusting God and trusting money. Because for a lot of people, in this day and in our day, the pursuit of money is really the pursuit of a kind of peace, hope, and security that you can only find in the gospel. This contentment gets at that heart issue. Do you trust God, or are you trying to trust a God substitute that seems more reliable and more controllable, like money, like your bank account? I remember one time I was down, there's an Exxon down on Broadway, right, where 12th and Broadway comes together, and I remember stopping in there one time because I needed to get some money out of an ATM. It was a few years ago. And um, I remember there, there was a little piece of paper from somebody who'd been at the ATM before me, inside the Exxon there, and the the temptation was too much. I had to look at it. And and I remember seeing this withdrawal slip, and the balance of this person's account was over a million dollars. And I remember thinking, man, that would be nice. (laughs) How would my life be different if I knew in my bank account, I had over a million dollars, and I could just go to an ATM and leave the, deposit, leave the withdrawal slip just sitting there. Like I didn't even care. But brothers and sisters, don't you know? What we have is even more reliable than that. It is. Contentment requires profound trust. A lack of contentment is maybe an indication that we really struggle to believe that God knows what he's doing. Well, let's, let's close with this, this third point. Undergirding all of this, both what God calls us to live like and the truths that are anchored are these last two verses here. God's radical commitment to his people. I like to say this a lot because we need to hear it a lot. Faith feeds on the promises of God. And that's what we have here. God promise Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. The word of God is true. And God who spoke his word is faithful. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. We're to feed on this promises. You know, the root of so much of our shrinking back from living this Christian way is a shrinking back from believing what God has promised to us. And I think you see that in the way the writer of the Hebrews closes this letter. He doesn't just say, hey, straighten up and get your act together. No, what he anchors all of this in is God has promised, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Remember, this is a congregation, a small little group of people. He says that they've already suffered the confiscation of their property. They haven't yet suffered to the point of shedding blood, but the implication is it's coming soon. And they need to hear. They need to hear, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. But God doesn't say, I know it's tough, you just kind of do your best to get through. No, he says, no, you still need to live this countercultural, radical, obedient life. It's what you were made for to what you were made for, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. God speaks this promise here. He speaks it even more clearly in Jesus on the cross, right? It takes on an astonishing power when you think, what does it mean for God to say, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, as he forsakes his son hanging on a cross? How can we continue to doubt this promise when we gaze at Christ and Him crucified. And hadn't that been a central point of this whole letter? This new and living way that has been opened where we can stand boldly before the throne because Jesus made purification for sins. is all the way back to chapter 1. And after He made purifications, He sat down at the right hand of the Father. And even now, intercedes for us so we can come boldly before the throne. And we can be sure that he will never leave or forsake us. Because if Jesus was ever going to forsake us, don't you think he would have done it when he was suffering on a cross? You may think it's difficult for him to continue to love you and not be frustrated at your lack of faith. Believe me, it was more difficult for him to endure the cross. The Bible nowhere records him wringing his hands in agony over your lack of faithfulness. But when he suffered the displeasure of his father on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So don't, we, don't you dare believe that your sin, that your lack of faithfulness can keep God From this promise. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And the last thing, the Lord is our helper. Now, I know sometimes people read about how Eve was to be Adam's helper. And sometimes that seems a little demeaning, doesn't it? But here's what you need to understand. That word is mostly used of God. You know that hymn we sing sometimes? A mighty fortress is our God a bulwark, never failing. Yeah, that's the word helper. It comes from Psalm 46. Martin Luther was doing a version of Psalm 46 where the Lord is my helper, an ever-present help in need. That word helper is a strong word. And when it says here that God is our helper, it's a big deal. What can man do to me if God is my helper? It's not like your assistant. It's, you know, the, 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 the bulwark is, is a terrible translation of that Hebrew word because the, the word in the psalm, and even the word in, in Luther's German, is the idea of a fortress that goes with us. Now, Too often, I'm afraid, the church thinks that we're a fortress that we kind of hide behind this earthen, like, wall. That's what a bulwark is. It's kind of like a levee, right? That's not the image. The image is, as you go out into the world... God, your helper, is this fortress on the move with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. The Lord is our helper. And look at verse 8. We'll close with this. The Lord, who is your helper, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Don't be fooled. Jesus has always been what we need, Jesus is what we need tonight. Jesus is what we always will need. One of my favorite C.H. Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher quotes, is this. Simple, but so profound. I have a great need for Jesus. I have a great Jesus for my need. And that's what it gets down to. A great Jesus who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, who will never leave us or forsake us. And that has got to have implications for the way we live and the way we love.